1: The following podcast contains explicit language.
2: I'm Dana Stevens, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, and now it's dead edition. It's Wednesday, August twenty fourth, 2016, and on today's show, we're going to talk about the demise of the website Gawker after a 14-year reign on the internet. Then we'll talk about Kubo and the Two Strings, a new stop-motion animated film from Leica Studios. And finally, Vacations. It's the time of year when we go on them. Stephen and Julia are on one right now. We all probably wish we were on one right now. And since we can't go on one this week, we will talk about our favorite pop culture depictions of vacations. And joining me today in Steve and Julia's absence is Slate's culture editor, Dan Coyce from DC. Hey, Dan. Hello, hello. Very happy to have you here. And Slate's features editor and also author of the, I can attest personally, really funny and wonderful new novel, Break in Case of Emergency, Jessica Winter. Hello. Hey, Jessica. And before we get started with the show, a couple of announcements. For one thing, we have our next Live Culture Gab Fest uh, set and ready to go in Los Angeles. It's going to happen on Thursday, October 13th at 7.30 p.m. at the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica. And we have a great special guest for our next live show, which is Karina Longworth, the host of one of my most beloved podcasts, You Must Remember This, the Film History Podcast. So we'll have Karina on stage and maybe some other L.A. guests. And we hope that anyone in the Southern California area will make the pilgrimage to see us Thursday, October 13th. You can find out information and get tickets at slate.com slash live. I guess the only other announcement is that for our Slate Plus segment today, Jessica and Dan and I are going to be talking about one of the listener questions from our last call-in show that we didn't get to that I thought was a great question about a book that changed the way you think at some point in your life. All right. So let's dig into topic one. After 14 years of existence, during which it helped set a new tone for what Internet era journalism could be and could do, the website Gawker closed its doors last week, subsequent to a gargantuan lawsuit brought against its holding company, Gawker Media, by the wrestler Hulk Hogan and bankrolled by the eccentric tech billionaire Peter Thiel. As journalists who write online, we obviously have feelings and thoughts and histories about Gawker, and uh, and we wanted to discuss it this week. But before we get into it, we need to, to do some disclaiming. Can I hand over the disclaimer, yes. Juan, to you first, Jessica? Yes, of
0: course. We, we have a few conflicts here at, at Slate. Our beloved politics editor is uh, Gawker Media's former executive editor. Our beloved news director uh, is married to uh, a top Gawker editor. And our beloved Dan Coy, is married to a lawyer who uh, represented Gawker in the Hulk Hogan suit. So we are, uh, in, in the words of the eulogy that we ran on Slate in honor of Gawker, conflicted up the wazoo uh, so we won't be getting into the details of the legal case in this segment, but we will be talking about Gawker
2: as an era-defining magazine. Right. This is a more a journalistic memorial, right, than, exactly. than a legal analysis yes. of the case. About,
1: about which we are conflicted in the normal ways.
2: Exactly. Uh,
1: the conflict of interest <laughs> ways.
2: Do you have anything yeah. to add to that conflict of interest disclaimer, Dan? Or are you good?
1: No, none. Just that, yes, as Jessica said, I w- definitely won't be discussing the case, which my wife has been working on for many years. Uh, but that as a journalist and a reader and a writer, I have a million things to say about Gawker, the website, and what it did uh, on the internet, which I think was pretty remarkable.
2: Well, okay, let's say, let's say that we've got some listeners, and I presume we have some who are not familiar with the history of Gawker, have bounced there from time to time through social media, but didn't, like us, kind of see the site grow up and grow up along with it. How would you guys summarize the the meaning and the sort of place of Gawker in the, in the online universe?
1: It evolved over time. It started as very strictly a media gossip website that it was founded um, by Elizabeth Spires uh, under the aegis of Nick Denton, um, who owned Gawker Media and all the various accumulated Gawker sites in the end. Um, But it started really as a site about the sort of power plays of New York media and its target audience were the the underclass of New York media, the people who worked as assistants or as wannabes or who loved magazines but didn't, but wanted to know more about the people who made them. Um, And it sort of chronicled the foibles of that executive class, which was so richly entwined with the East coast elite uh, upper class. Um, And it evolved over time into eventually into a general interest Gossipy, politicky website about culture and news and politics and celebrities uh, that it, that you know was very dependent on its writers, but shared in its approach to each of those subjects a very aggressive, uh, tree shaking philosophy and real skepticism of authority uh, that was sort of I thought its defining feature.
0: Yeah, it definitely evolved over time. In the beginning, it would be edited by one or two years at a time by one writer slash editor. Elizabeth Spires, as Dan mentioned, was the founding editor. The second writer-editor was Corey Sika, who I think kind of single-handedly defined a new way of writing for the web. I, I think if you can point to any one singularly defining and influential writer on the web of the last 15 years. It would be Corey. And then he was followed by Jessica Cohen. And then the site started getting bigger and, you know, you would have four or five people writing for it. And then it's it's it slowly
2: became this this empire with legions of people writing. About. And also a lot of reporting, right? Which wasn't happening so much in the early days when there was, it was kind of one voice that would rule the site exactly. all day.
0: Um, you know, they, they developed a, a really a uh, good network of tipsters they had a tip line where you know stuff was always coming in especially about the publishing world and the media world and by the turn of the 2010s, I would say it had become a real investigative operation to be reckoned with. I mean, some of their coups of the last few years have been uh, the tape of the mayor of Toronto smoking crack or Adrian Chen, who's now of the New Yorker. He uh, uncovered the identity of the man known as Violent Acres, who was one of the most destructive and disgusting trolls on the entire internet. Adrian tracked him down and exposed him. We had Adrian on the show afterwards and that that was an incredible piece. Uh, Just a few months ago, Ashley Feinberg did this fantastic investigation of
2: Donald Trump's $60,000 hair. I mean, they... Which was about 60,000 words on the $60,000 hair, (laughs) but every word was was worth it.
1: incredibly convincing as a piece of investigative journalism.
2: I especially love the slow-mo gifs of his hair lifting as one in the breeze
1: (laughs) it's worth noting too that i mean that you know a listener might listen to those and be like well i mean sure they broke those stories but you know what did they do that was important uh and it's worth noting for snobs like that hypothetical person i just invented that they broke stories on very traditional you know political and newsy grounds they searched they combed through the clinton emails and found amazing stuff about the Way the Clinton administration, and found amazing stuff about the way the Clinton State Department dealt with reporters. Uh, you know the way that they granted access and granted favors and made requests of reporters. Reporters were quick to leap to uh, accede to. Um, they have been all over that story. They've been all over many traditional politics stories in ways that uh, slower and less agile publishers have been really sl- have been really bad at. Um, they were. They were. They were a publication that was devoted to interrogating the general power structures that rule over our lives. And uh, sometimes those power structures are ones that people can easily grok and understand, like the politicians or the money men. And sometimes they're ones that they were some of the first to recognize, like Silicon Valley trillionaires.
2: Are there places that you guys see Gawker's DNA or influence in the media now? I mean, it's it's spoken of as this kind of foundational site of of web journalism. Would you say that that BuzzFeed, for example, is a kind of mega offshoot, like a gargantuan offspring of of Gawker in some ways?
1: Well, they were enemies. So I don't know if either one of those publications would want to say that but right but you can
2: share dna with your enemies
1: you can share dna with your enemies and they do i mean this the speed with which gawker operated and the enthusiasm with which they chased their chosen subjects became a kind of mode uh of almost all internet writing i think their ability to find and ride a hobby horse for journalistic or comedic purposes is a thing that every good internet magazine does now. BuzzFeed does it uh, you know, for clicks and for profit in a way that Gawker often did. But they find the things that work for them and matter to them and they ride them off into the sunset until they stop working. And that was something that Gawker pioneered and got good at. Um, and and that other sites have modeled it after. Other sites are very beholden to Gawker for voice, as Jessica said, especially Corey's uh early Gawker voice which was both ironic and enthusiastic, uh, but the enthusiasm always had this very slight tinge of uh, of a wink to it, and he always you always got the sense that he knew so much and that he was just giving it to you bit by bit um, in a way that was so delicious and exciting for a reader. Um, that kind of voice, the sense of peeking onto the peeking into the inside of things that you were not otherwise able mm-hmm. to see, the sense that Nick Denton always wanted the site to have of being not the not just the news, but the stuff that the journalists were talking about in the bar after the paper closed. That kind of voice is now everywhere on the internet.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just want to talk about Corey's uh, prose for a minute because oh. I, I I love it so much. Um, he. Corey wrote a book called Very Recent History, which is sort of from the perspective of a future historian or maybe this extremely convincingly humanoid alien emissary. Um, He had this mystique-like ability to take on the skin of whatever media figure or demi-celebrity, you know, whatever hackneyed prose he wanted to to critique – and there was a coolness about his prose. I don't know why I'm saying past tense. Cocker Because he hardly ever Corey. writes anymore. Corey, Corey is still with us. The coolness of his prose, in both sense of the word, wasn't a pose or a posture. It, it hinged on his being or his persona. I, I don't know him as being ever so slightly distracted. You got the sense that this was a person who was primarily interested in art and books and his friends and his cat. And that even though he always had the exactly correct, uh, precise and cutting thing to say about the material he was thinking about for Gawker, it was nonetheless material he was only secondarily interested in. There's this great line in Carla Blumenkrantz's N Plus One piece on Gawker where she talks about how Corey would eavesdrop on conversations and say that they were, quote, paraphrased due to inattention. Um, (laughs) And I just, that was what made Corey's writing cool and I think a million people have tried to imitate that and a million people have failed but his his influence is everywhere and then in terms of just getting back to the BuzzFeed comparison I think part of the I think there's there's a there's a lot of Venn diagrams you could draw between BuzzFeed and Gawker I think one of them is that neither of them get enough credit for being incredibly aggressive investigative operations you know still in 2016 people write off BuzzFeed as this like you know, meme factory. BuzzFeed does amazing investigations and people write off Gawker as being this, you know, snarky, nasty, um, you know, tabloid cesspool. And there have been moments in Gawker's history where it has been that. Uh, But it it also has amazing scoops and amazing investigations and is incredibly aggressive. And, And I think BuzzFeed and Gawker were very much in competition with each other to get those scoops and neither of them get enough credit for it.
1: That's maybe the real connection between them is that they both are publications of a new era in which you can be both those things. Yeah, You can be both a meme factory and an aggressive investigative unit. You can be both a trashy celebrity garbage pit and and a website that pushes against – the strictures of society in a way that benefits all of us. Like, and the people I think who struggle most to understand new media and the way that the internet works are the people who cannot envision a publication that isn't just one thing, that isn't just the paper of record.
2: Well, it seems, and it seems like at least both of those two sites you're talking about not only can do both of those two things, but but must do both of those things to survive and and sort of have it in their mission. And something that really struck me in reading all of these eulogies to Gawker all over the media some from former writers there and some just from, you know, readers over the years, is sort of the purity of that mission, of Gawker's mission, whether what they were investigating was Donald Trump's alleged weave or, you know, some, some important political story, is that, is that whether it was trash or treasure that they were uncovering, it was the process of uncovering and the transparency of that process that was important. And it seems like they, they did really stick to that. So they sort of stuck to that that motto throughout their existence.
0: Yeah, I mean, Nick Denton's stated motto, his stated litmus test for Gawker was, is it true and is it interesting? Now, you'll notice in that there's no, is it in the public interest? And I think that's where many people felt that Gawker overstepped its bounds at times. Um, But it also meant that they were just... You know, completely unapologetically aggressive about whatever they were sinking their teeth into.
2: Well, can you guys, I mean, since we're not going to get heavily into the lawsuit, but since the lawsuit has to do with invasion of privacy issues, right, whether it's Peter Thiel being furious that he was, as he claims, outed by Gawker, or Hulk Hogan being furious that his sex tape was leaked to Gawker, there there are these these accusations of essentially unethical journalistic behavior, and I wanted to hear what you guys thought, not even necessarily of those two instances, but did you have moments that you read something in Gawker and and thought. Oh, I feel dirty. It was unethical to have published that.
1: Yep. I sure.
0: I, yeah, sure. Yeah. Can you I think mean, of an example? A... Yeah, I can give you an example. Um, the worst thing they ever did, to my mind, and I, I, I'm very interested to hear if Dan agrees with me, was about a year ago. Um, to my eye, they more or less participated in a blackmail plot. Against a male media executive who was not himself famous, who was not a public figure himself, he's related to a person who's pretty famous. Um, he had a well-known last name, and he had arranged and then backed out of an assignation with a male prostitute, who then decided to. I remember that story. Right him. Um, that was to me and to many, many other people, including many other Gawker alums. Was the most diabolical distillation of is it true and is it interesting? It did appear to be true. It was well corroborated. It was definitely interesting and in a queasy kind of way. I mean, I'm like wriggling around in my chair just thinking about like I'm so uncomfortable thinking about it. Um, you know, I certainly read the post. I remember it, but it was not newsworthy and it was destructive for no reason.
2: Right. And the argument could have been made that not only were they covering a blackmail scheme, they were participating they were in one. They were participating in it.
0: Um, and that's not, you know, I, I get really tired of people qualifying and framing and adding all these caveats to their eulogies to Gawker, like, oh, they did some bad things. Like, I'm, I'm sick of that. Like, Gawker should still be with us. Gawker was important. I loved Gawker. I read it Every single day. But yeah, there, there were moments like that where I thought, hey guys, you know, maybe re-examine your mission and re-examine what makes you so incredibly great because you're better than this.
1: Well, and I would take a step further and suggest that to my mind, posts like that post and the many other missteps and gross things that Gawker did were part and parcel of what made them important in the I agree. media world. You know, the media world right now it seems like it is being sort of systematically scrubbed of gadflies and jerks and, uh, and useful nuisances. And fewer and fewer organizations are willing to display a kind of open distrust and contempt of the ruling structures in our society. And that to me feels like a mortal threat. It feels like a mortal threat to journalism that fewer and fewer people are willing – to do the thing that Gawker did, that Gawker was better than anyone at doing, that was being a skeptical and critical voice. And by doing that, and by often going way over the edge, they accomplished amazing things. And by pushing those boundaries, they sort of provided cover for the rest of us, moral cover and social cover and sometimes legal cover for other journalists elsewhere to do important stuff because they were unafraid to do the wrong thing, um, it meant it made it more way more easy for journal other journalists to do the right thing, including journalists like Gawker. And it seems to me like the media ecosystem without that kind of publication within it is going to suffer, and it's going to be a lot harder to to for any organization to do the kind of sort of interrogation of the structures that rule us all without gawker being there just like sometimes throwing shit at people
0: i agree people point at gawker being so unafraid as being somehow proof of its demise or something and that is completely the wrong takeaway from this the fact that gawker was so unafraid was exactly why it was so important that it survived and why it was so important to so many of us in journalism
2: especially jessica because of the, the fact that the way Gawker shut down and the, the fact that it was able to be essentially driven out of business by an angry billionaire, it seems like it will have a very chilling effect on journalism going forward.
1: Look, this is I mean, when Gawker shut down, the thing that I tweeted remains true, I think, and I really believe it, which is that every publication should be really afraid of the exact same thing happening to them, regardless of whether you think your publication is better than Gawker or more moral than Gawker or would never do the kinds of things that Gawker did. Uh, you know, this has proven that as with almost all systems in America, with the application of billions of dollars, uh, the freedom of the press maybe doesn't actually apply as much as you thought it did. And y- your publication, too, can be shut down instantly if that's what someone decides.
0: I know that this is be- will become a subtext in how I do my job every day. I might, it yeah. might not be in the front of my mind. I might not be actively thinking about it all the time, but it's going to underwrite everything I publish, ev- every story I consider
2: for for publication. And that's, that's really scary. All right. Well, that's, that's depressing. So thank you, Peter Teal, for making the jobs of journalists like Jessica, all <laughs> the more uncertain and ambivalent and Thanks, frightening.
0: Pete. Appreciate it.
2: Well, if you have thoughts, memories, rants that you want to make against or for Gawker or Peter Thiel, please post them to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash CultureFest. And you can also go on Slate and read a roundup of some Slate staffers' picks of the best posts ever made on Gawker during its 14-year existence. We'll put a link to that on our show page as well. All right. Well, as Steve Metcalf likes to say, moving on to our second topic, which is a new movie just released this weekend. Kubo and the Two Strings is the fourth movie to come out of Portland, Oregon's Leica Animation Studios. The first three, to give you a sense of the studio's style, were Coraline. Paranorman and the Box Trolls. Now, Kubo and the Two Strings comes out as their fourth movie and the first to be directed by Travis Knight, who is actually the CEO of Leica. So we're going to listen to an audio clip from the movie. And the voices you will hear are Charlize Theron as a talking monkey and Matthew McConaughey as a life-sized, a man-sized beetle samurai. Is that how you would describe him, Dan? It's
1: 100% accurate, yes. (laughs) They are the two who are guarding the hero of the story, Kubo, through his quest.
2: So we're about to hear them arguing about how they're going to get across a lake, given that monkeys don't swim.
1: Hey, what were we grown up
0: conversationing about? No, you're ridiculous. You're just absolutely ridiculous. Ridiculous. Crossing the lake is a ridiculous idea. It's not your fault.
2: There's no sense left in your head.
0: I think I resent that. I may not know everything.
2: Anything.
0: Anything. But I do know Kubo is more capable than you think he is. You're being a tiny bit overprotective here. You're being a lot overprotective here. It's my job to make sure Kubo is safe, and that is not safe. You, you are
2: not safe. Kubo is just a child.
1: And an incredibly gifted one. He just saved our lives.
2: Yes, he's very powerful, but he still has much to learn. What?
0: Well, fast learner.
1: what they 're responding to at the end of that clip is that while they have been arguing, Kubo has been using his magical power, uh, assembling l- dead leaves into an enormous, beautiful ship for them to cross the lake and uh, and one of the one of the dynamics that goes through this movie a lot is about these two very protective figures in kubo 's life coming to grips with the fact that he is quite accomplished. Uh, he's quite a quite an accomplished kid on his own and can really do maybe more than they think he can.
2: I think, yeah, talking about what he's accomplished at seems like a good way also at getting at what this movie looks like and how remarkable the uh, the visuals in the movie are. So Kubo is a combination sort of folk storyteller, right? We haven't said yet that this movie is set in what appears to be feudal Japan. So right. his he plays this little instrument. I believe the name of this instrument is a shamisen in Japan, that little two-stringed or his is two-stringed um, sort of square guitar. He strums that and Tells stories in the public square, and people come and give him coins. This is how he so helps support himself and his mother. And he is also a magical origami artist. Can you describe his his origami art, Dan?
1: Yeah. So when so as part of the storytelling, he plays uh, this instrument, this lute-like instrument, and the the music he makes cr- causes. Scraps of paper that – of origami paper that he carries with him to spontaneously form themselves into the characters in the story and then to act that story out. So a piece of paper will turn into the samurai hero of the story he's telling and another piece of paper or multiple pieces of paper will turn into the warriors he defeats and the fire-breathing chicken who menaces him. (laughs) And every day he goes to the town square and tells these amazing stories – aided by these, these lifelike or moving origami figures that he calls into action. But every day he must stop the story before the end because Cinderella-like, he must return home before it gets dark uh, at the tolling of the bell because otherwise his mother has told him the Moon King, his grandfather, who killed his father, um, will come after him and attempt to take him away uh, to his kingdom up in the sky.
2: You know, something that struck me about this movie, and I don't know if this is a Laika a thing or just an old folktale thing, but there's this whole question of missing eyes and that the, the moon god, his grandfather, is going to come and take his other eye. He's We haven't mentioned but that Kubo wears an eye patch and he seems to have lost an eye in babyhood. And I couldn't help but flash back on Coraline, whose entire story revolves around, you know, this magical world in which this girl is afraid that that this sort of bad mother is going to take out her eyes. I don't know where all this, this eye stealing comes from, but Laika seems to be into it
1: feels very potent, yeah and folk ish like I mean I think they do go for the elemental in their storytelling. They seem to be trying to create in many of their movies these sort of modern folk tales that have the weight of the of the great classic folk tales, and that that 's one way to do it.
2: Did you take your kids to see this, Dan?
1: Uh, we did, yes, um, we saw this at a, on a big screen uh, in Wisconsin with my kids and my niece and nephew. And they were not nearly as scared as I thought they would be and were totally enchanted uh, all the way through. And, you know, in fact, seemed to connect the most to the sort of most elemental parts of the storytelling and were a little less interested in the sort of bickering funniness that sometimes happens in movies like this that they that they throw in for, you know, for laughs. <laughs> what they really loved were the action sequences and the the real quest the mythological quest at the heart of this story they really connected to that
0: i'm so glad you mentioned that because i felt that that was a tension to in the movie of uh, th- there's one part in particular where the the beetle monster says that he was once a samurai or maybe a really bad hoarder like there's these off-key moments right uh where they seem to be going for this kind of glib jokey uh, contemporary kids movie when really what the movie wants to be is something timeless and elemental and, and more serious and grave and more of a throwback and right. the word
1: you're looking for is shrekie it becomes Shrek-y Shrek-y. In moments, <laughs> yeah but it but only occasionally and those are the worst moments in the movie and the moments when it steers away from that are the ones when it's the most powerful i think
0: yeah. And as the movie progresses, I feel like that falls away. And the yeah. last half hour or so of the movie, it, it becomes what it wants to be. And it's very potent and satisfying.
2: Yeah. The ending, I mean, without giving anything away, I can say the ending is just, it's stunning and it's surprising. It does something that a lot of children's movies don't do in the way that it deals with loss and, and sadness and grief. Um, and I think, Dan, you agree with me, the end The end was quite incredible.
1: Yeah. On two fronts, in the way it deals with grief and also in the way it deals with a bad guy. Like it treats the bad mm-hmm. guy in a way totally different than i think any kids movie i've ever seen and i found that totally fascinating and uh and remarkable
0: yeah i think the end of the movie without giving away what happens or or any of the plot the the ending of the movie was fascinating to me for one thing the final tableau made me cry and i mean sob like i made Mm -hmm. a scene in the (laughs) <laughs> In the theater, and, and this is a side conversation and my my daughter's one and a half, and you have older kids and i, I really want to know when I can go to the movies again without completely losing my shit when like stuff happens to kids that's sad uh, maybe well,
1: my kids are eight and eleven and it hasn't <laughs> happened yet
0: okay that's 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 reassuring um but also the the film's treatment of memory is is so multifaceted because wants to make this testament to the power of memory and how if you hold people deep in your heart, then they can never be taken away from you. And I, I think the, the working tagline for the movie is memories are the most perfect kind of magic there is. But at the same time, the outcome of the movie depends in part on the fraudulence of memories. Like the, the movie is saying that memory is powerful, but memory can also be a lie. And without giving anything away, like the last movement of the movie is this like community-wide act of gaslighting <laughs> where someone oh, is implanted wow. with false memories and or I you just, could refer
1: to it as a community-wide moment of storytelling
0: that too that's right um yeah it's i mean that's what i'm saying it's just there's just so many different layers to it and i i had a hard time unpacking them all while I was also like blowing my nose and trying to pull myself together to walk out of the har- into the harsh light of Union Square um, and I you know I have no context for this movie I don't see kids movies anymore that era of my life will will soon begin in a few years but I, I just I have seen no kids movies in the last 10 years and so I didn't know if that um, unbelievably sophisticated treatment
2: of memory is something that we can expect from kids movies today or if it if it's a outlier well I mean I think Inside Out is a movie that has a similar similarly ambivalent relationship right to Haven't to, to memory and to and to sort of character formation in childhood you know I mean it it has an, an idealism and it also has like an incredibly deep melancholy um very different from this movie but I think it is equally complex in the way it, it treats that emotion. Um, I don't think I loved this Kubo and the Two Strings, though, as much as, as you guys did. For example, when I compare it to Inside Out, you know, I, I was incomparably more moved and and carried with the movie with me much, much more with Inside Out than I did with this film. And I think to some extent that's been true of all the Leica films I've seen, though I haven't seen all four of them. They're always just stunning on a visual level. I will never stop being charmed by stop-motion animation. This stop-motion animation is aided by computers, so it's not as endearingly wonky as sort of... Um, the Fantastic Mr. Fox or one of those movies that really is just dolls being moved by human hands. But um, but it is really luscious to look at. But I didn't cry. I didn't I, I, I understood the emotions I was supposed to be feeling and I guess sort of felt them at, at, a, at a movie level. But this movie never ripped my heart out of my body. I don't know why quite. Dan, you, you, you feel the same as Jessica. You were deeply. Was your heart outside of your body, Dan?
1: Uh, my heart was halfway in and halfway out.
2: So <laughs> it right was in that me, little guys. cup holder next to the cinema <laughs> that's seat. Correct.
1: It was. Um, it was. It, it was. The Venn diagram of me and my heart was half and <laughs> half. Uh, I found it quite moving. I didn't. I, I cried a little bit, but that's like at this point in my life, that's just like I cried everything. Uh, so that's not like a useful gauge of whether it actually ripped my heart out. I found it beautiful. Mostly what. Touched me about this movie even more than the message about memory, even more than the losses that the character suffers, was the beauty of it, which is what I really connected to. Um, And it became so beautiful by its end that that had a really – potent effect on me like it had I had an emotional response just to the way that this movie looked that was sort of separate from the quest narrative at its core and the questions about memory that are raised and you know as with any kids movie a great deal of my response to it at least as with any kids movie when you are parents seeing it with your kids a great deal of my response to it had to do with the way that my kids responded to it afterwards which was quite thoughtful And I think this was universally true of all the kids in the theater that we saw with. They did not walk out of that movie like, you know, again, to raise the spectrum of Shrek, they did not walk out of that movie like Dancing to I'm a Believer. Like they walked out of that movie sort of chewing over what they had just seen and talking about some of the beautiful things they had seen and thinking about the questions at the heart of it. Uh, And that touched me, too, like seeing the way that they sort of wrestled with these things in the same way that the movie was, I found really quite moving.
2: Did your daughter see the movie, Dana? I couldn't get her to go with me. I've written about this on Slate before, but shes it's its really hard to drag her into a theater. There has to be some big selling point, like if Meryl Streep was in the movie, <laughs> she would go to anything with Meryl Streep in it. If it's a movie that I've already seen and I know she'll love, if I can say to her, 100% you will love this movie. But for me to just say, I'm seeing this new movie called Kubo and the Two Strings, it was she she, she chose a different afternoon activity. But I would sit down and watch it with her, and I'd be very curious how she responds to, Dan, as you say, this this tone that is a, is a little bit more grave and more quiet than the ending to most kids movies yeah all right well before we leave Kobo and the two strings we've said so many nice things about this movie is there is there anything you guys hold against it anything that you wish that it had done differently
1: Uh, I would just note that I mean the the voice acting is very good in this movie Charlize Theron and Matthew McConaughey who are we already mentioned and this kid from Game of Thrones named Art Parkinson who plays Kubo Um, but it is worth noting I think that when you look at the cast list uh, this tale of feudal Japan that is deeply influenced uh, by Japanese art and Japanese mythology and Japanese folklore uh, has a cast list that is full of uh, Asian American actors and actresses. um, But they all play tiny two line parts that are sort of shuffled off to the margins. Every main character is played by a white person. Um, And, that you know that is not something that you the kids notice and is not something that you even really process while you're watching it but afterwards watching the credits i was like oh that's that's sort of a bummer
0: and even the beautiful song that plays over the final credits it's just exquisite it's a regina spectre cover of while my guitar gently weeps um, done in a style that's influenced by japanese folk music i mean even right. that they couldn't find a Japanese artist or a Japanese song to play, you know, to play you out of the theater. Um, I I thought that was a little gross to Dan. I I agree with you that uh, they could have done better on that count, especially because, you know, kids, I never really understand why they get these big Hollywood stars to do voice acting on these films that the kids don't care it's not what the you know what's getting kids into the theater but in in this case in in particular it seemed pretty egregious
1: yeah i mean it's interesting the movie is just so as you noted dana it's directed by travis knight who runs like um and who is um maybe or maybe not notably the son of phil knight the head of nike um and, uh, you know, he, in articles about this movie, he's talked about how he went with his dad on a business trip to Japan when he was eight, and he got so inspired by Japanese culture, and he's always wanted to tell a Japanese story. And that is great, and it is totally fine to be amazed and influenced by other cultures, but it would, n- it does not hurt necessarily to bring in some Japanese people to help you tell that story in a way that, that it seems like it did not – really do with this it's you know there are no japanese names and among the screenwriters really or the main cast plenty of plenty of uh of animators of color and other technicians of color worked on this movie but the big names associated with this are all white and that's a bummer
2: all right well taking that into into account would you still recommend kubo and the two strings to our listeners
1: yes definitely
2: for sure I think I would too. So everybody go out and see it if you want to and write us at com slash culturefest and tell us what you thought. All right. So for our third topic today, we tossed around all kinds of big meaty ideas of shows to see and big topics to discuss. And then we sort of decided, you know what, it's summer, it's late August, and all we're all thinking about is lying in a hammock and jumping into a lake. And so Dan was the one who proposed that we have a surprise segment where we each bring in, without telling the others in advance, our favorite pop culture vacation, pop cultural representation of a vacation. and, uh, And go around and talk about them and talk about what makes a vacation movie book miniseries. Or, or other cereal box, I don't know, other cultural <laughs> manifestation, something great. The Olympic cereal boxes, right? That's sort of a summertime <laughs> thing. Um, okay, so Dan, since you had the idea for the topic, let's start with you. What's your favorite pop culture vacation?
1: Oh, my God. I went through so many great ones, which I'm now going to drop now in hopes that I'll, just in passing, spoil your guys' choices. Uh, there's the Go-Go's vacation, um, which is all about trying to get away from your thoughts of a crush, a summer crush, being totally unable to. Um,
2: and being Belinda Carlisle water skiing, which is an indelible being, video image.
1: And being all of them water skiing in tandem. Uh, against against a
2: fake, one of those bad pro- back projection backdrops.
1: Uh, it's the most beautiful music video of all time. Uh, there's the sort of classic vacation gone wrong in the spring breakers mode. Or there's the vacation as rebirth, uh, as in Morvern Caller, Lynn Ramsey's amazing movie uh, in which the title character finds her boyfriend dead of suicide, sells his novel for a bunch of money, and then goes to Ibiza. Um, there's the vacation that turns into a farce, which is best exemplified by Larry Shue's great play, The Foreigner, which got uh, mounted in New York a couple of years ago with Matthew Broderick. Um, but here's the vacation I chose. I chose the road trip that uh, Mark Slackmeyer and Mike Doonesbury took in the summer of 1972 uh, in Mark's motorcycle with Mike's sidecar attached to it in Gary Trudeau's comic strip, Doonesbury. Um, this is a trip that uh, spanned basically the whole summer in the life of the strip. Um, it's a multi-week epic journey that these two characters went on. The book that it eventually got collected into, um, which was one of the first very successful Doonesbury books, was called Call Me When You Find America. Um, and I love this vacation because it is both uh, a parody of a very particular kind of of era-specific American vacation, the easy rider-type Finding America journey, um, and it is also a, a sentimental embrace of the benefits of that kind of trip. Um, Mark and Mike, and sometimes accompanied by Zonker, they hit all the marks of a, a trip that a bunch of hippies would take uh, across America in the early 70s. But each, each mark they hit has like a little twist. They get threatened in Philly by, uh, by like this thug who just hates hippies. Uh, it turns out it's actually the mayor of Philly at the time, Frank Rizzo. Um, they take a guy they meet in Lafayette Park in dc out to mcdonald's for lunch but it's henry kissinger uh they meet a street person in san francisco but he's actually a session musician who makes 40 grand a year and who won't talk to them um and the best part of this trip i think and the thing that really resonated with me when i first read it when i was a kid um was that they begin the trip with the sort of classic two guys on a road trip appeal right to keep an eye peeled for broads uh, as they drive across America, they both are, you know, they're young men, college men on the hunt. Um, but they end the trip by picking up in Denver uh, a hitchhiking housewife um, who just wants to escape her husband and kids into a life of feminist consciousness and who will turn out to be one of the, like, the great characters, I think, of of 20th century art, uh, Joni Caucus. And they pick her up and take her back to to Walden Commune. And that's how she joins the strip. And it feels like this incredible end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, and one perfect summer.
2: Oh, that's wonderful! Wow, that's great. See, something I was thinking about when you were describing the the serial nature of that—that that it unfolded over a whole summer in real time—is that you, yeah, what you're saying yeah. is yeah, that so is that unlike a, we're reading it as exactly. It was well, and Gary Trudeau was inventing it as it was happening, and it was just occurring to me that unlike making a movie or making a TV show about a summer vacation, he didn't have to have all the decisions made in advance. He could have that summer vacation serendipity during the making of the the, the strip.
1: Yeah, and it really feels like it too. Like it, it's at one point the guys go to the Republican Convention in Miami, and that feels like a last-minute audible Trudeau called when he realized (laughs) that their path would take them right there.
0: And getting back to um, Spring Breakers and Morvern Caller, those are two amazing examples of great vacation movies, very, very different vacation movies. And I, I remember seeing both of those movies in the theater and thinking, just, just feeling such glee and excitement because I had never <laughs> seen movies like that before. I think, you know, yeah. There had not been a movie made like either of those before, at least not that I had seen. And those are the kinds of epiphanies that you want when you're on vacation, whether it's out of boredom and letting your mind wander, or whether it's because you're going on some amazing sightseeing tour, you you want to have
2: these revelations And both of those movies in very different ways felt like that to me. Well, to me, a big question trying to, I'll get to my list later, but trying to, to compile this list was, you know how how bad of a vibe do you want on your summer vacation? I mean, because these vacation movies basically divide into two kinds, right? The trip gone wrong, which can yeah. go a million interesting different ways, from deliverance on down, or or a, a, the, the trip gone right. You know, the trip that leads to some incredible discovery, or you you know you get stuck in the wrong place, but then you fall in love with the person you meet. And uh, and in the end, I decided just for the sake of this having been such a grim summer that I had to pick a happy vacation movie as my pick. But really, huge huge numbers of them turned out the, some of the best movies, Vacation or No, that I've ever seen are about, you know, the the trip that you had such high hopes for that disintegrates. Okay, Jessica, let's hear your list. What have you got? Well, Dana, you'll be relieved to
0: hear that I have a feel-bad recommendation. Um, There's a French filmmaker who I'm sure you're both familiar with named Francois Ozone, uh, who at the end of the 1990s and the beginning of the 2000s had this amazingly rich and prolific streak of movie making, a, a lot of which... Was very seasidey and sun drunk and vacationy and and very dark and sinister at the same time, and it his movies captured a feeling of time that starts out feeling lazy and relaxed and underscheduled and and quickly turns um, strange and and even violent. Um, he made this fantastic short called A Summer Dress that captured this feeling. Um, he also made this extraordinary novella length film it's not quite a short not quite a feature called See the Sea and I, I don't know if you've ever seen it um,
1: I never have
0: it is one of the most devastating seaside vacations you I wonder ever. if that pun
2: works in French is the, is the title in French See the Sea? Regarde la mer? I guess it just seems it's, 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 do you miss out on the whole pun? <laughs> the film I really want to highlight
0: is one he made in 2003 with Charlotte Rampling it's called Swimming Pool have you ever seen that? Oh yeah <laughs>
1: Yes
0: <laughs> Rampling plays memorably plays, as she always does, uh, an English mystery author with writer's block who goes for some R&R at a country house in, I believe, the Côte d'Azur and comes into passive-aggressive conflict with the young, hot, sexually adventurous woman played by the wonderful French actress uh, Ludovine Sanier who may or may not be the daughter of the owner of the house. Um the movie explores ramplings or the rampling character's insecurities about her writer's block and her age. The relationship between the two women goes from tension to competition to a kind of twisted allegiance. There are metafictional strands to it, there are feminist strands. It's a really fascinating and haunting mix of of, of modes, of tones, and it's ostensibly a movie about going to your summer house or going to your friend's summer house. Um I I, lo- I love Ozone in general. Um, he has very strong kind of you feel the influence of, like, Fassbender and Antonioni in his movies. Those kinds of vacation gone awry Antonioni movies are so great of the 60s and 70s. But there's this post-new queer cinema vibe to everything that he does. And it's just great. I mean, this is all just a plug for Francois Ozone.
2: Francois Ozone, yeah. I thought you were going to mention Sous-la-Sable, Under the Sand, which is yeah, another, another great Charlotte, rampling Charlotte rampling vehicle. Charlotte rampling at
0: the beach movie. But I feel like people people are... People know about that one. I feel like swimming pool maybe got a little bit overlooked. I might be wrong about that.
2: Yeah, and they both have that similar mood, as you say, of everything being languid and sunbaked and 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 ominous. And they just they look fantastic in addition to everything else. And very very minimalist dialogue, right? I mean, many many scenes that go by where where no one says a word and everything is implied. There's a scene in swimming pool. I hope I'm getting this right because
0: it's been a long time since I saw it. Where (laughs) Charlotte Rampling is just raiding the refrigerator and she's doing that thing that. I know I've done when I'm in someone else's house where like you want to take the food but you don't want to like seem noticeable that you took the food so she's like slicing like tiny little slices off the cheese and like trying to figure out how much she can get away with taking out of the fridge and like there are no words but it, you learn something about her you learn something about the dynamic of where she is in her life and uh, yeah he, he does amazing things with silence for sure
1: uh, alright Dana what do you got?
2: All right, so as mentioned, I kind of did this division in my list and started because they're fun to talk about doing a separate list of the, you know, the vacation that you don't want and then my final my final pick will be a vacation that you actually would love and enjoy. So the vacation turned bad movies, but that are great movies if you want to go down Jessica Winter Lane and see <laughs> see something really grim. Don't don't look now the Nicholas Rogue movie about Julie Christie and Donald sure. Sutherland hanging out in Venice with some crazy I don't know, hooded dwarves. Oh my god, I love that movie. <laughs> (laughs) Such a great movie. I mean, it's one of the great movies of all time. And it so happens to be about a vacation. So don't look now head at that list. And then similar movies in that mode of, you know, sort of a vacation that never ends or that turns into something kind of infinitely sinister are Walkabout. And also a Nicholas Rogue movie, in fact, which is about a young Australian aborigine going on Walkabout and coming into contact with these two lost White kids from from the city and uh, and the kind of adventure that they go on together, which also gets very dark and strange. Um, Picnic at Hanging Rock, another Australian movie about a day that turns into a lifetime of vacation. Um, and of Just course, what we all dream of, exactly. And then, uh, to me, the head of this list is Deliverance. Right? I mean, if there's one trip Ooh, that you don't want damn. your summer vacation to turn yeah. into, it's John Voight's experience I in Deliverance. I thought was going dark, <laughs> but those are off the list. Those are all in the no oh, yeah, side. Those
1: her actual pictures? Oh, okay. She would never do that. <laughs> <Okay. Sorry.
2: laughs> so then, because I went so dark, I had to go really, really sunny for my, my final pick and, uh, and also go back in film history a little bit. So my happy vacation movie is Roman Holiday from 1953, the William Wyler film, in which Audrey Hepburn, I didn't realize, made her U.S. debut, essentially. She had made movies in Europe. She'd done some TV in the U.S., but she'd never had a starring role in an American film until 1953 in, in Roman Holiday. And it was originally Elizabeth Taylor who they wanted for the film. If you try to imagine Elizabeth Taylor Taylor and Gregory Peck in that movie instead of Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck. It just, as great as Liz Taylor was, it just doesn't work. It's it's the newness and freshness of Audrey Hepburn's persona that makes that movie so fabulous. But if you haven't seen Roman Holiday or haven't seen it in a while, do you guys remember it very well? It. Oh, it's such a pleasure. So the story of Roman Holiday is that she... Audrey Hepburn is a princess of an unnamed country who goes undercover essentially. She's in Rome, she's on this diplomatic tour and she's so tired of shaking hands and being proper and she just sort of goes out in disguise on her own and and runs away and uh, through a bunch of various machinations she winds up chastely sleeping at the apartment of Gregory Peck, who's an American reporter in Rome, and who's trying to cover the princess, not realizing that the undercover princess is there sleeping off a hangover in his apartment. And then it just sort of follows them on location through Rome, riding around on a Vespa and, you know, investigating the fountains and having this fabulous day together while their identities are... Slowly being revealed to one another. It also contains one of the great movie makeovers of all time—the moment that Audrey Hepburn goes in an attempt to disguise herself, right, because she's the princess undercover—and chops off all of her long hair in a, in a Roman beauty salon, and you know, just comes out looking like Audrey Hepburn with a pixie, <laughs> which is the greatest thing you could imagine. So, um, so along with a few other happy holiday movies like Itumamatan Tambien and uh, The Day Trippers, Greg Matola's Greg debut film, I would put Roman Holiday on top of my "Goddess it on Vacation" list.
1: Uh, that is a great pick. I love that pick.
2: You know, one more that I just thought of, too. I can't, can't stop throwing more in. And this is also something somewhere in between the trip that goes bad and the trip that has exciting discoveries is Old Joy. Do you guys know that movie? Oh, oh, Kelly Reichert's oh, first yeah. movie. So let's, oh, wh- movie. Wh- why, why, do you, why do you moan in happiness at the mention of Old Joy, Jessica? Because that movie
0: is so it's just a feeling, not a whole lot happens in it. I remember about halfway through it feeling kind of frustrated, like where is this going? What are we doing? Why are we here? And the, I, Dan, you've you've written about this. You've written about Kelly Reichardt's um, movies in particular. How you right. have to kind of sink into them and just let go of your usual expectations of what a plot is going to achieve or what a movie
2: is going to make you feel. And by the time what what is it, the Hot Springs? Yeah, it's time. these two friends, two male friends who have known each other for a long time. Yeah. You get the impression traveling together to a hot spring. They don't have that much in common anymore. They're kind of growing apart. They have lots of awkward conversation in the car. They finally get to the the hot spring. You're right, there's almost nothing to it at all. But one of the things I love so much about it, in addition to the great performance by Will Oldham, I, I love the character that he plays. The, the, he, I think of him mainly as a singer, kind of an alt-country singer, but he plays one of the two friends. But I think what I love the most about it is that there's so few male friendship movies that let that let men be as kind of awkward and, I don't know, I don't know, not not competing for macho position as these two guys are, right? I mean, there, there are all kinds of subtle sort of status conflicts between them, but it's not what you would expect of the two college dudes on the road movie at all. Yeah, and we were talking about the power of silences before. I think that movie accomplishes
0: so much with not silence per se but those awkward conversations and all the subtext that you read into them the you know, their past their friendship what how their friendship has unraveled over the years how these two very different people it doesn't really make sense maybe anymore that they're still friends but none of that happens on the surface it's 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 all something that you have to infer and work for and it's so rewarding to work for it
2: yeah i mean it you-
1: is it also is it's a little bit antithetical to the notion of a vacation movie this notion of working for the to understand this one, but it is a re- that is a rewarding example of that, of that form of the, everything under the surface, uh, everything on the surface is very placid and, and, and in a way frustrating for the viewer, but there is so much going on underneath. And if you settle into it, you, in the way that they settle into those hot tubs, you really can be immersed in that, in that movie.
2: Well, I'm glad I threw out that one as a last movie because it turned out we'd all seen it and we all love it. So, all right. So tell us your favorite vacation movies or see some of these and come back and tell, them, tell us if you want to take those vacations or not at facebook.com slash culture Well, it's really flown by, but the time has arrived in our show that we endorse. Dan, I hear that you have an endorsement so powerful that it was the whole reason you wanted to come on as a guest this week. So I think Correct. we should start with you.
1: Correct. I, t- I emailed Julie a couple of weeks ago and I was like, I have something I have to endorse. And she said good news I'm on vacation in a couple of weeks you're my guest host um so uh the uh, guy named Matthew Perpetua who is an editor at BuzzFeed um but who long before he got that jo- that job at BuzzFeed started what I believe to be uh, one of the very first mp3 blogs of the of that era of music discovery um, called flux blog he has spent most of 2016 creating uh 10 epic amazing survey mixes of the music of the 1980s one for each year um and he's been releasing them in reverse chronological order so last or in early spring he released his 1989 mix and just a few weeks ago he released the final one his 1980 mix uh each mix is immense um they in the in the way that those of us who grew up with mixtapes or mixed CDs would think of each one is basically eight full cassettes or eight full discs worth of music. Um, They cover, they cover such a wide spectrum. They are a real attempt to survey the entire universe of music, both popular and unpopular of that era. So they include everything from, cheesy pop hits like nothing's gonna stop us now to very edgy um or unknown punk or um or early rap or underground uh lo-fi music of those years and they're very well put together a very cannily sequence but mostly they're just this tremendous treasure trove of discovery uh even for someone like me who was probably at his peak music-consuming and loving years in some of the of nineteen eighties. There were still things in every mix that I would completely forgotten about songs. You know, I haven't heard in decades since I maybe heard them three times on the radio. But having been reunited with them on this mix, I now love them like uh, the song "Casanova" by Levert. From 1987, this sort of of new Jackie R&B song, which is just about a dude with too many girls. Um, But also, it's it's introduced me to stuff that I should have known about in the late 80s as a theoretical guy who liked progressive music, but which I just never happened to come in contact with. Um, The mixes are great. They are downloadable for free. Um, They are totally remarkable works of sort of pop scholarship and open-minded music thinking, which is something that I've always associated with Matthew throughout the years on Fluxblog. You can find them on fluxblog.org. Um, That's Matthew's MP3 site. There's a sidebar on the right that links to all of the, his 1980 surveys. I have no idea how long Matthew will have them up. Um, I, no one has sued him yet. <laughs> Hopefully no one ever will. Um, But they're so great. And I recommend taking the several hours it will take to download them uh, and putting them in your iTunes. Remember when you downloaded music like to own? Do it with these.
2: Oh, that's fantastic. That sounds so great. I really want to explore that. Okay, Jessica, what have you got? I am
0: two-thirds of the way through reading You Will Know Me by Megan Abbott, which is a really good kind of post-Olympics come-down read. It takes place – um uh, in the world of, of elite young women's gymnastics. And uh, this world has some intrigue and possibly some murder in it. Uh, and it's just a great ripping yarn. I'm tearing through it really, really quickly. And one of the grace notes of the book um, that, that, I, that I'm really responding to is is that it deals with how... Parents handle it when one of their children is a total superstar and all of their attention and money and thought is sort of being poured into this one elite athlete child and how they allocate their remaining interests to the other child. It's not a huge theme of the book, but it's one that I found particularly poignant and arresting. And I'm, I'm
2: interested to see how it plays out. Um, but I love it so far. You Will Know Me by Megan Abbott. Nice. Well, now, especially since one of you endorsed an incredibly long set of playlists that sounds like it would take days to listen to the <laughs> entire thing, and the other one endorsed an entire novel, I'm glad that I have something very sh- quick and light and short for my endorsement this week. It fits in nicely. This is obliquely related to the Olympics, actually, which I didn't watch very much of, but which had a really great human interest item early on that I remember tweeting about that a bunch of capybaras wandered onto the Olympic golf field and had to be rounded up. I love capybaras. capybaras are the best. And so so I'm in a way I'm endorsing capybaras because they're just the best animal. So the capybara is this animal that's native to South America. They're all over Brazil, but I think they wander around all South American countries. And they're essentially giant guinea pigs. They're guinea pigs that are the size of actual pigs. They probably weigh 50 plus pounds and they move in social packs. And they're just these adorable furry chunks with big shovel-like heads. And uh, having traveled in Brazil a little bit, especially in the Pantanal, the marshy section where capybaras run wild, I've had many wonderful experiences watching capybaras in the wild. So when these capybaras got onto the golf course... And there were little fun videos of them being rounded up by uh, by Carioca, you know, Olympic workers. I was reminded of the great Tumblr animals sitting on capybaras. Are you familiar? I am not. <laughs> I'm
1: not, but I'm googling it right now.
2: It is the pure. It is so pure of intention. I mean, Gawker has nothing on animals sitting on capybaras. It has one interest in life, which is photographing. Animals sitting on capybaras, and given that capybaras are sort of like moving couches, you know, they're these big, solid, square chunks of fur. Other animals love to sit on them, and they tend to live in heavily forested areas where there's lots of monkeys, lots of water birds, and all kinds of other creatures that use the capybara as their island. Are you looking at it right now, Dan?
1: There are so many pictures of things on capybaras.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this this Tumblr has been going on for. I'm not sure. Maybe you can tell looking on there, Dan. But I know years. I mean, I know six or seven years that that I've, I've been going back to look at animals sitting on I mean, capybaras. I haven't
1: reached the end and I've been scrolling <laughs> since you brought it up. So.
2: And you can find, you know, gifs of, of monkeys diving off of capybaras, backs into marshes and just every possible variation on the uh, animal and capybara oh God, image that you can a imagine. a turtle on
1: top of a capybara.
2: <laughs> See, I told you. So this is this is how you can refresh yourself in the midst of your your exhausting 80s music listening and, and mystery reading is if you just need to just go zen and look at some animals sitting on capybaras, the address is animal <laughs> sitting on capybaras.tumblr.com the You win the recommendation the, game. Yeah, okay. Week. It goes without
0: saying that Dana wins recommendations this week. I have yeah. a quick question. Is the zen ever broken by feeling bad
2: for the capybaras that they're being used as furniture? Like?
1: No, <laughs> they don't seem to care at all.
2: Okay, good. I'm relieved. I, I'm sure that they're all like symbiotic grooming relationships. <laughs> I mean, the whole, it, when you look at this Tumblr for long enough, you just feel like nature is not red in tooth and claw. It's just snuggly fun. <laughs> just everybody in a big snuggly pile. That's awesome. All right. Well, Jessica and Dan, this was fun. Thank you so much for sitting in for Steve and Julia this week.
0: Thanks, Dana. Thanks a lot.
2: You will find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lizzie Fizen. Our managing producer is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network. You can see their whole roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. And our Twitter feed, of course, is at Slate Cult Fest. For Dan Coyce and Jessica Winter, I'm Dana Stevens. We'll talk to you next week. Oh, Cassanova. Cassanova.